All right. Some jazzy music to start. Yeah. That's just like the default music that came with this podcasting equipment. I haven't put my own little music in there yet. So let's hear a little bit more of it. Okay, this is the weekly newspaper podcast, Darren Johnson. So who's Darren Johnson? Um, I run a newspaper in tiny Washington County in deep upstate New York called the Greenwich Journal and Salem Press. And I also own a paper called Campus News. And it is a paper I started 15 years ago. And I don't think the local paper would exist if, um, if not for Campus News. I live in a town. And uh, the local paper was going out of business, and I figured, hey, I already have this. Uh, I already have this newspaper going. I started a college paper 15 years ago called Campus News. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at buying the local paper. So it was, you know, distress sale, um, and I was about to open an office and do it the old-fashioned way because I worked at those type newspapers. Where, um, where you had a whole office, you know, because I remember the olden days when you used to be able to have a staff and uh, sit around an office and, you know, shoot the shit, as they say, and, and talk about things and maybe have a few drinks here or there and um, get caffeinated at least and have some Snickers bars and pound out stories and, you know, people would walk in with their obituaries or you know it wouldn't be their obituary but an obituary that they wanted published or a letter to the editor they were complaining about something and that was kind of nice but even the wealthiest of those small town papers that still exist can't even really do that anymore a lot of them have sold their offices and such so I was about to kind of like say hey let's be retro here and and um and open an office, and maybe there'll be some synergy there, and, and people will come in, and it might be good for business. Maybe an advertiser will stop in and say, I'd like to buy the back cover for $750. And, and uh, you know, maybe that would happen, and, and it would pay the rent for that month. Um, but it didn't happen, so uh, the COVID happened, and I was looking around actively at spaces, and COVID happened, and I was like, well, F it. You know, the, the college paper wasn't really bringing in um, as much revenue, obviously very little revenue during COVID because colleges were closed. And we still had boxes on the streets of New York City, so we could still print. And there was some, you know, some copies would get picked up, but we couldn't sell as many advertisements. And uh, we're still recovering from that, honestly, because some advertisers, once you lose them, they never really come back. They get out of the habit of advertising with you. So obviously a lot of advertisers didn't want to be in a print newspaper during COVID when the campuses were closed, even though we had this street edition. And it's hard getting them back. And we also just lost the mojo. You know, you lost, we had a whole group of people that regularly did things. And you kind of, um, you might hear some background because there's a college radio station that I advise right next to me and they're doing some work. Um, but you know, it, it lost a lot of the mojo, too. So it was a regular part of my schedule. I'd get it to places to get distributed. And we had a route in Massachusetts, for example, that we don't do anymore. And we had a route in New Jersey that we really don't do much anymore. And uh, we might do specialty runs if we have advertisers in those places. But other, otherwise, we'd 
just stick to New York now. So, um, so you know that COVID definitely put a crimp in everything, and it um, it made me have to downsize. And and at the same time, I bought this other albatross of a paper that obviously was not making money. Um, you know, you could say in some ways it was losing money. Depends how you do your books, I guess. But um, it was not making money, let's say. And um, it had some subscri subscribers, but not a lot. And it had some newsstand sales, but not not a lot. Not, not enough where one person even could make a living off of this paper. So, um, and, you know, there's printing and mailing costs, so it, it all evens out, right? So, um that was, you know, that was COVID, but I don't know. It's all these years later, right? And I'm still ticking and still doing things. And the papers are still in existence. So they might have been taking some body blows, and it might be the, the 14th round of a 15-round fight, considering we're in our 14th year with Campus News. Um you know, and maybe we're winning on the scorecards, maybe we're losing on the scorecards, but we're not knocked out. So keep going, and you keep plugging away, and you hope for things to happen. You hope for um, there might be some legislation in this state, and there is some legislation in New York City that um, might steer some more ad dollars to legacy newspapers those few that still exist, you know, the ones that we're able to hang on. Now, the the, wa the waters are muddied somewhat in that a lot of people can claim to be a newspaper. You know, someone can start a website and say, I'm a newspaper, and should they get funding? You know, so the waters are muddied a little bit as to what's a newspaper and what isn't, um, especially in the United States where we have a First Amendment and uh, a lot of things can claim to be a newspaper, in other countries, they're, they kind of have rules in place as to what a media outlet is. They get registered by the government in some way or something like that. So they know who their newspapers are. But here, it, you know, Joe's website could be a newspaper tomorrow. Could say, hey, uh, I'm going to take your funding. Uh, that was supposed to go to legitimate newspapers. So it's muddied waters, especially in, in a state like New York where there's so many special interests. So, which gets me to my point, six and seven minutes into this, um, I wanted to do a podcast today about a topic that's probably going to upset people in the two realms of my existence. Um, the two realms of my existence are journalism and education. So, I've kind of made a niche for myself in higher education. I was an administrator for many years, and I wouldn't knock that. You know, it gets, uh, I downplay it a lot in conversation because it sounds boring, but it did teach me some things. I was, I was the PR marketing administrator for colleges for about 16 years, and it did teach me some things. It taught me to um, organize. It taught me to maybe, maybe gave me a thicker skin, it taught me that marketing isn't necessarily a bad thing. And a lot of people in the journalism world think that marketing is like the devil. Uh, that's the bad side of the business. But it taught me like to also maybe be a little bit pushier, more aggressive when it comes to marketing. 
And that was the final piece to the puzzle when I started Campus News because I knew how to write and I knew how to lay out newspapers and I knew about production schedules and distribution and all that. But I didn't know how to, how to monetize. So maybe those years as a PR person and a marketing person taught me how to monetize. And you can't exist without monetization, especially nowadays. You have to have a way to monetize. So, you know, that, that's, what, that's one world. The other world that I'm in is, um, well, I, I, you know, the higher education. And, you know, those are the two worlds I'm in. I think I said it already. The higher education world and the, um, and I, I, expanding on that, I teach journalism. So I've, in my later years, I get these roles as visiting professor uh, or instructor or whatever the title they want to give it. Um, because I have, I have a terminal degree and I have um, lots and lots and lots of experience. And I always, even when I was in the middle of everything, even when I was a journalist, um, full-time or an administrator full-time, I always took adjunct teaching gigs and I just kept doing them. I kept doing adjunct teaching gigs. Now, if I can go back in time to like, you know, 20 something self, when I first took my first adjunct teaching gig, I would advise 20 something self. I'd say, um, you know, that adjunct teaching money is, um, an adjunct to your salary, like you have a full-time salary, but you're also earning like two, three, four thousand dollars teaching a three-credit course on a Friday night or something. And I would have said to myself, take that money instead and put it into a because I was paying like income taxes on it, and the adjunct money doesn't it gets taxed at a um it just gets taxed at a horrible rate. You lose like so much of it because it because you're considered pretty much a freelancer of sorts for the college, you get, uh, they just, it gets killed with taxes. So at tax time you get killed. I always paid money because I adjuncted instead of everyone else getting refunds. And I would advise myself, I'd say, just put that into instead like one of those mutual funds, one of those retirement funds, 401k or similar. And, that way it doesn't get taxed, first off. And second, by now, if I had saved all my adjunct money, which I didn't, I would use it on, like, family vacations. And I'd say, hey, I got my adjunct check. Let's go to Disneyland, you know. if Whatever. You got to live your life, too, right? Uh, you know, I hear about these uh, families that never go to Disneyland or never go to Disney World or they never... And that's, that's not good either. You know, you want to have some excitement. But we went a lot to... Disney World and Disneyland and other places and, you know, New Orleans and Mexico and Caribbean and lots of places. Went to lots of, lots of, lots of places. So we did a lot of that. Um, and that's where the adjunct, I always treated it like, hey, um, here's some extra money. Let's go do something with it. And if I could go back in time, I think we could have still done the vacations if I took the adjunct money and just threw it into a... Uh, mutual fund or something, something like that I would have in my later years. And it's not that I didn't know the later years would come. It's just that I'm a little bit of a gambler and a lot of bit of a gambler. Obviously I start businesses and you always think like you're going to get that big payday down the road. Like if I put in this kind of work, eventually 
Like if I start a newspaper, eventually I'll sell it for a million dollars. You know, you get that mindset in there. It's like, why not? You know, you see, that's the narrative we tell people in America is that if you start a business, it'll either fail, right? Or it will be worth something and you can sell it 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So we all hear about like the guy that starts a pizza place, sells it for $2 million because it has a good clientele and moves to Florida. You know, that's, that's the, uh, now if you're listening to this in Florida, I don't know where people from Florida move to. See, that's the thing. You, you should live in a state other than Florida so that you can move to Florida in your later years. In any case, we all hear that. So we hear that that's the narrative that's out there. Every business guru and, and every book tells you either you're going to start a business and it's going to fail. And then you get stats like, oh, four out of five businesses fail in their first two years or some stat that's similar to that. Uh, the stats are different all the time. Or like nine out of ten don't make it to the five-year mark or some stat like that. So very few make it. So then you assume if you do make it to the five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty-year mark, that you've created a business that you then, once you're too tired to man it anymore, that you could sell. You could sell it to someone, and you can, um, you can, you know, then move to your, you know, uh, whatever metaphorical Florida or North Carolina or whatever the case is. So many people I know move to like either of those two states or New York State. I guess it has to do with like how their retirement. Savings are taxed or something. I forget. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. And then also the warmer weather. It's good on your, if you're starting to get like arthritis or something, it's supposed to be better for you. I don't know. I hate, I hate like extreme warm weather though. I just like hate it with a passion. So all those trips to Disney World, I'd be like walking around Epcot was a big parking lot. It's like just, it was so hot and sweltering. And I'd commiserate with the people that came from like the UK and they were sweating and passing out too. I'm just a, a northern type person um, metabolically. My body type is just northern, and I don't think it's going to change. Because in reality, um, you know, if I were a normal person, I'd probably be thinking of retirement in 10 years, you know, age-wise and everything. And uh, But I'm not a normal person. I'm just going to probably keep working. And... You know, when you start to get within 10 years of retirement time, you start to think of your exit plan. And uh, and so that's when I would start to be thinking about Florida, I guess, if I were to sell out in that way. All right. In any in any respect, um, those are the two. Those are the two fields that I've delved in higher education. And, you know, while I worked as an administrator, I got a terminal degree, uh, an MFA in writing. Uh, I got, which a lot of schools for the purposes of being a visiting professor, they count that similar to a PhD. So I get paid like what a PhD would get paid, I guess. And a visiting professor is kind of cool in that you're full time, you get the benefits, but you don't have to do a lot of the um, faculty boring stuff like uh, tenure review or, you know, worry about tenure. I don't advise students on which courses they should take for the fall or spring. I don't do any of that stuff. So um, it's kind of you get the the glory of being a professor without um, some of the more mundane tasks that professors do, and you can avoid some of the politics that the 
that the full-time tenured and tenure track professors have to deal with, like, uh, you know, getting published or getting, um, you know, being reviewed or, or those type defending, you know, whatever you have to do. You don't have to do any of that stuff as a visiting. Um, so it's kind of cool, but it's hard to get to that point in life where people will say, hey, that person has enough gravity, gravitas, gravitas to, um, to be in those shoes. Uh, so it's not like they're just going to hire anyone off the street to be a visiting professor. You have to kind of check off a bunch of boxes. In my case, because I'm also a working journalist, I could advise school papers and radio stations, and uh, I know software, which most professors don't know. And uh, so I can come in there and talk the talk and walk the walk. Uh, so most schools, they have these very active organizations like school newspapers and radio stations and such, and they need someone to man things, and a lot of times older professors haven't kept their skills up to date and uh, or they're in transition or whatever it is, and you know maybe they're looking for a permanent tenure-track professor to fill the slot, but in the meanwhile, they'll hire a visiting professor for a year or two or three to fill in the slot. And, uh, and that's what I do, and I find that there's you know dozens and dozens of colleges in the Northeast, and I'm willing to commute uh, probably like three dozen are within commuting distance. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure at any given moment, one will have a position like a visiting professorship open until it's time for me to officially pack it in. But I've always had like this safety net of having other things that I could do. Like, for example, a lot of time there was a period during COVID, I didn't get a visiting professorship. And um, at, instead, I got what, what are called adjunct teaching positions. And adjunct teaching positions aren't as good as a full-time position. They usually just pay you by the course, like, as I mentioned, like a freelancer. So you might get paid. The going rate in my area is about $4,000 for a three-hour course. Now you say, wow, that's great money. It's really not because it's three hours a week for 15 weeks. And you can't just show up and teach your course and not do any extra work. There's prep, there's grading, there's, you know, there are um, requirements that you as an ad, there's trainings you have to do, like diversity and equity and, and inclusion and um, sexual harassment trainings. And, you know, there's things you have to go to. It's, it's like you're kind of a full-time employee in that you have to be trained in the same way. But you, um, you don't have like set office hours or anything like that. Um, so during COVID, it was a tough time financially because I didn't have a visiting professor role. So, and I didn't have, um, and the newspapers, I, I had just bought a, a newspaper that was a money loser, my local hometown paper. And, um, and my main newspaper, um, was devastated by COVID and loss of all that advertising, and it's a free newspaper, so it's not like it had other revenue sources. So uh, it was a it was a horrible time, and um, I don't blame anyone for that. You know, I, I don't blame uh, I don't blame the newspaper industry. I don't blame 
the higher education field. Um, you know, during that time, it was COVID. It was a dangerous time. It was a patchwork of of getting benefits for myself and my family. You know, I'm the primary bread earner, and um, you know, my daughter's just early career and is under age 26, and so you know needs my insurance and. Um, my wife works um, a very important job, but it doesn't offer benefits. You know, it's in the the childcare industry, and it's um, you know the uh, honestly, I think jobs like that should offer benefits. I think that you know you would want your employees to be in the best of health, but they generally don't. It seems like some of the jobs that are the most important in society they um, just give you an hourly wage, even though. She has to have a bunch of credentials to do that job. She has to get like all these certifications and things of that nature. It's not like a job you could just walk into. And obviously, you know, the care of people is uh, who are vulnerable, whether it's children or elderly. Um, you know, there's there's probably not much more important work than that, and much more um, work that you would want professionals to be doing than that. You don't want to have like an amateur come in. That's when problems start to happen. In any case, um, I'd have to do like a patchwork of uh, of getting benefits for the family. So one of the adjuncting gigs I got was at a major university. And if you taught a certain number of courses, you were technically eligible to buy benefits at a pretty okay, you know, relative to the United States rate, probably on par with buying um, Obamacare, but better coverage. So you could buy the university benefits at the price of what Obamacare pretty much was. And, you know, of like a bronze plan, you know, of, of Obamacare that wasn't so great. Um, you know, and then you get like, but if you do have to use it, there's big deductibles. So it's not the best in the world. Um, and I'd have to figure it out. Somehow we survived it. You know, I had to use some savings, and uh, uh, books are still, um, you know, reeling from that period, and uh, it's just like, uh, it's just a cycle that you're into. And the topic I wanted to get into that's somewhat controversial, and it'll make you, you know, it'll, you won't make friends bringing it up, is in my two worlds of journalism and higher education, especially from the adjuncting realm, there are a lot of people that feel like they are um, they are being exploited, and it's true. You know, it's true that a lot of people in the world of journalism and adjunct teaching are being exploited, and probably should earn more money and their jobs are very precarious and many of them have to go on, many of them don't have proper benefits and don't have, um, a, they don't have a lot of discretionary income and they have to figure out a way to um, cobble their existence together um, and their jobs aren't guaranteed. And I'm seeing like some of the last bastions of establishment journalism in America, like the Washington Post and the LA Times and the New York Times to a degree, and other similar 
places that are considered the most prestigious, and it's already happened at places like Sports Illustrated and all the major magazines, um, is that, uh, and it's happened at places like, I think, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette last year, um, what's left of any collective bargaining in the world of journalism where a bunch of writers and editors and people in the newsroom could collectively bargain um, is totally falling apart. So there's been strikes and walkouts and you know people in the realm uh, being downsized and bought out, even at places like Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos or Bezos or however he wants to pronounce it, the Amazon founder, um, who has gobs of money, and the owner of the L.A. Times had gobs of money, but they don't—they're starting to view these publications as a money pit, and the journalists are um, are up in arms and they're feeling like they're you know like they're getting some of them are getting up in age too, and their futures are in heavy doubt. And they're probably, most of them are going to lose their jobs. Already, a lot of newspapers have gone out of business. Uh, you know, the, I saw one stat that maybe two or two and a half newspapers per week go out of business in the United States. So, you know, a lot of them are going, now the, most of those are tiny newspapers, but like the one I bought, but they go out of business. And, uh, and the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. So, how much, and the writing has been on the wall for a long time. We kind of knew when newspapers didn't handle the internet well that um, that a lot of them were going to go out of business. We knew that this was, was it. You know, newspapers made the mistake. There's no use going back in time. But they didn't handle monetization well when the internet came out in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. And since there's been a downward death spiral for all newspapers because people got in the habit of thinking news should be free. And even I see it at my local level, I have limited my local paper to just a couple of drops now, a few drops. I drop it at the post office so that people who subscribe can get it. I drop it at one convenience store in town that gets a lot of traffic, not the other one because, uh, because of this reason. And then I drop a bunch at the grocery store and the... And even as I dropped off a bunch the other day, uh, an old elderly gentleman walked up, picked up a copy as I was loading it, picked a copy of my newspaper, picked a copy of another paper from our county that exists in our county, put him in his bag and walked out the door of the store. And, you know, I had greeted him and everything, made eye contact, all the things they tell you to do as a greeter so that people don't shoplift. You just shoplifted. And the numbers suggest that... Probably a large number of people shoplift paid circulation newspapers from their local stores. So I've cut a lot of it. And there's one convenience store in town where the staff doesn't monitor it at all. They have little booths in the convenience store. People just take it, read it, scratch their lottery tickets, spill coffee all over it, either keep it or put it back in the pile all dirty with you know chili dog stains on it. And, uh, and so I stopped delivering there. I figured people, if they really want this paper... They're going to have to subscribe to it, and they're going to have to get it in their mailbox. Uh, enough with the people that are so paranoid that they don't want to be on a subscriber list. They get a discount for subscribing. Uh, let them let them find it. Let them figure it out and get it mailed to their house and stop being like a, a weirdo that you have to buy the newspaper at a convenience store or something. You know, it's 
It's not an impulse buy. It's not a daily newspaper that you, you get on your way to work. It comes out, you know, occasionally, and you could subscribe to it. If you care at all about your community, you could subscribe to the local paper. So, you know, that's that's what I've done. I, I've had this life, and I saw little opportunities here and there to buy a paper and to change some things around and to get um, a terminal graduate degree and to turn adjunct teaching into full-time teaching when necessary. And I always feel like I have this safety net of if the newspaper stuff isn't going well, all right, I'll just do a little bit more teaching. If the teaching isn't going well, all right, maybe I'll do a little bit more newspapering. I can go sell ads during the time I would normally be teaching. And I've developed this, um, while not making me rich, and I don't think I'll be able to sell these publications because I guess not all businesses appreciate. Uh, when I retire, not you know, unless I really change them around a good deal, which I, I am, I tinker with them. Look, I'm doing a podcast now. That's something that no previous, in the 182 years of uh, the Greenwich Journal and Salem Press, I doubt any of uh, the predecessors were any good at all with technology. I know technology really well. I'm doing a podcast right now. I know it super well. I teach it. So, um, you know, maybe I can do some things to make this thing keep going and be sellable down the road. But not that I want to sell it anytime soon because I, I enjoy it. But um, in the worlds of journalism, I listen to journalism podcasts, and I listen to podcasts having to do with adjuncts in higher education. There's a lot of, um, a lot of like, victim uh, victimization, I guess. Is it victimization if you're the victim and you're complaining that you're the victim? Um, a lot of people complaining that they're the victim. And... In a way, and this is, you know, the unpopular thing, I hate to say it, you have to take responsibility for your own career in life and adapt as time goes by. It's very rare that someone gets a job and can stay at it as is their whole life. I've known some people like this, and they have like this willfulness to stay in their position. Um, someone I went to college which, with, who I mentioned in a previous podcast, got a job doing like boring beat reporting. Listen to the podcast I did on boring stories, and you can hear more about it. Um, and he's still doing it to this day. You know, he figured out a way to linger in there, become popular in the office, and still do the same thing. When I did college PR, there was one person I came in with, and you know, was very set in in their ways, um, and did capable work within the job description, was in the union, figured out a way to stay, survived their five-year um, reviews or whatever it was that the union required, and will do this job until retirement. Hasn't really changed it much over the years. Maybe picked up a new skill here or there, but very incrementally, very slowly. Figured out a whole career doing it. All right, the same can't be said, though, for most newspapers which are already throwing the white flag out there and are giving up. You can't expect to get a newspaper job. They have never were that lucrative to begin with, but one that will just take you from cradle to grave and, and as your taxes and, and your bills go up and you have kids that want to go to college 
and you um, and cars are now you know thirty thousand dollars to just for a basic car, um, and you're still earning six hundred dollars a week. You can't expect that to uh, to carry you. You can't expect that, and benefits go up too, and they take more and more out of your pay. Uh, gas goes up, all of that. You can't expect that to happen for you. So you have to do things to tweak your own career as time goes by and to keep your skills up to date in whatever area. So if you are a working journalist and you're one of these people whining that you're, you know, that you're going out of business, well, yeah, your paper's going out of business. It is. The LA Times will be out of business. It might be a cool website in a few years, and that's it. And how many people do you need to work at a website? Three, five, ten? You're not going to need you're not going to need dozens and dozens of people to work like they have now. They have scores of people at the L.A. Times, um, you know. Or the publication gets bought by someone who is political, uh, as you saw happen in Baltimore, the Baltimore Sun, um, or the Las Vegas, um, whatever their paper's called, the Review, I think it is. That was bought by someone political, you know. So it's. These newspapers, because they're struggling so much, they could be sold at a cheap fire rate, uh, fire sale rate, and the person who buys it could be political, and they just they don't care, you know. They're the newspaper; they have enough money where they can lose a few bucks on a newspaper as long as they can get their point out. You see it at the largest level with Elon Musk buying Twitter, and it being devalued almost instantly. Um, and it's it's only probably half or less of it, of the value you paid for it in just a short amount of time, so you see that happening too, and it's um, and the writing's on the wall. So are you going to be an employee of someone like that, of someone who's highly political who tries to nudge you in a certain direction to write in a certain direction, or um, a paper that maybe they they aren't political, maybe they're just a hedge fund and they're going to put you out of business eventually anyway, so. Is that what you're going to do? You're going to put yourself in someone else's hands and let that happen? Or are you going to do something? So I see all these journalists who are displaced from major papers, and they all just like, none of them stay in the business. None of them. They might create like a little bloggy website to try to save face, but that's not making any money, you know, or, you know, create a newsletter. That's not making any money. It's, it's a rare website, news website at the local level that's making even, you know, enough for you to pay your lighting bill or whatever. It's, it's a rare, let alone hire anyone, you know, so that's a rare website. I've bumped into maybe two owners in the past 20 years who kind of made a news website go, but they had really good ad salespeople helping. So, you know, unless you have that connection, it's pretty rough. So, um, you know, they don't stay in the business. They either become like kind of bloggers and they pretend they're still journalists or they get some job that is journalism adjacent, like a PR director job or uh, or something like that. Or they're, you know, maybe a college job if they could um, or something in that realm. Um, or they're just like selling insurance or doing whatever they do and it's just a career shift. So something that they studied in college, something that they spent 10, 20, 30 years perfecting now they can't do that thing anymore it's like telling you know um pavarotti can't sing anymore sorry your singing job is over 
and uh, and you can't sing anymore, Pavarotti. Maybe you can sing in the shower. And that's it. And with the adjuncts, the adjunct teachers, adjuncts are, it's, it's interesting. And hey, who knows? After, I'm probably going to adjunct again in my life. And, um, and sometimes there are two types of adjuncts, largely. There's career adjuncts. And then there's the ones who kind of do it as an adjunct to their life. Like, this is a little add-on to my life. The word adjunct means, like, extra. And it's like a little extra. The, re the reason my colleges call them adjuncts is because they're supposed to be extra professors for when they need a specialty course taught or um, a professor's off on sabbatical. Let's hire an adjunct. Or, boy, we have no one at 9 o'clock on, you know, Friday morning to teach uh, algebra. Let's hire an adjunct. Um, that's what it's supposed to be. Now, I understand that colleges have added myriad graduate programs. And so more and more people are getting graduate degrees. And a lot of them are misled, or maybe it's just, you know, Pollyanna-ish. But they, um, they think that if they get a graduate degree, they can become full-time professors. And really, there just aren't enough jobs. Colleges themselves are shrinking, not as quick as newspapers, but a lot of them are going out of business. Um, you know, there's one in the Albany area that um, that I worked at for a while that declared it's going out of business. It's in its last semester right now. And they, um, they maybe they were misled a little. Maybe they were a little bit too optimistic, idealistic, and thought that they would get a full-time teaching job. But... And some people do adjunct for a few years, and then their genius is recognized, um, or they're really good networkers, or they're in a niche subject that there's a real need for, um, and they do become hired full-time. So it is good practice in that regard. But some people become kind of like these career adjuncts, as mentioned, where they teach at like several colleges all at once, and they're commuting in their Honda Civic and I wrote a book called The Adjunct, which you can find um, on, like, Amazon or something if you're interested in it. Just look for Darren Johnson, and it's called Professor Mule, The Adjunct, Prof Mule, The Adjunct, um, and you'll find it. And it kind of delves into the world of, like, surviving as an adjunct. And let's say you're earning forty uh, four grand, um you know, in some places, it's even less. If you're down south, it's less or Midwest or something. Let's say you're earning three or four grand per course and you're teaching, some of them might teach even like eight, nine courses or more, which is out of the realm of, of normalcy. A normal full-time professor teaches like three or four. So that's per semester. So that's a lot of courses. So let's say they're earning, you know, uh, four times eight, 30. Let's say they're really doing a lot um, and they're, they're at decently you know, relatively decently paid adjunct positions. That's 32000 a semester, two semesters a year, it's 64000 Maybe they get a summer course or two, um, knock them up to seventy. Let's say they earn seventy. Uh, that's And that's a lot of work. They will, they'll be working so much they won't have time to do anything else. It might sound like a good amount, and it's not horrible. You know, it's better than, like, um, a lot of jobs in the world. But... It's taxed at the full rate. You have to probably pay for your own benefits. All those miles on your car. 
and you know life gets in the way. So bef- and there's no growth. So you're just going to be doing the same job for years and years. You're going to be too tired to um, be hired as a full-time professor. What does that mean? Too tired? You're going to be you're going to be like so wor- working so hard. You won't have time to work on your polish, on your portfolio, on your um, publications, on the way you look and dress, your fitness. Uh, you know, because let's be honest, when you go for an interview. A lot of it is like that coolness factor of, uh, oh, that's a professor I want to have a beer with. You know, like the, the colleagues, your colleagues, you have to be a certain type. So, you know, you're not going to have time to be up to date. You're not going to have time to do the impressive things. Go to those conferences where you meet interesting people and say interesting things. And, um, and you're going to just lose that luster after years of doing that. So you never will get a full-time position. It's just not going to happen. If it doesn't happen by your early 30s, it's probably not going to happen unless you reinvent yourself in some way. So a lot of it is is like you as either a journalist or as um, a contingent faculty member, you need to be responsible for like just look out for yourself. Don't expect a newspaper to take care of you. Don't expect a college to take care of you. None of them are going to take care of you. They're, they're not going to take care of you. They might even go out of business themselves, and they are going out of business at break in, breakneck speed. They don't have time to deal with you. So it's not going to happen. So you have to look out for your own career. In the world of journalism, you might want to get that graduate degree so maybe you can adjunct your, you know, add some income by adjuncting. So now you have a freelance life and you have an adjunct life, and you can, you know, somehow meld the two together. Lots of uh, former journalists do that. If you are an adjunct, you probably want to maybe cut that down to just a course or two and not take, uh, or maybe three, and not take on courses that are out of your wheelhouse. Um, don't, don't wear yourself thin. But that means you're probably going to have to get a day job that has some kind of advancement to it. Don't just take any old day job. Don't wait tables or something. The other thing is to that I want to mention, and I think it's kind of important, but it is um, also frowned upon to talk about, but, and there's a definite schism in the two worlds um, of journalism and uh, in education, in contingent education, adjuncting and such, is I don't think you should air your victimization I, I think maybe within your safe little groups it's okay. But I don't know if it is helpful to you in your position to report that you're a victim. For example, some um, adjuncts go on food stamps or they use the, um, they use the campus uh, pantry for extra food. Or they tell their classes, like, hey, do you know what an adjunct earns? And all of those students, their parents all earn more than the adjunct teacher. And all of them are going to go on to careers that pay more than a pure adjunct teacher. They're all going to do that. Does that diminish your ability to command the classroom and to command respect and to have what is viewed as gravitas. If you are putting it out there that, oh, I'm on, um, I'm on, you know, public assistance, and not that there's anything wrong with it, 
but you know, or that my student loans are 150 grand, or um, all of the things that are tales of woe. Is that really? First off, you don't want your students to feel sorry for you. You don't want them to feel like they have to protect you. That's kind of uh, it's kind of manipulating them in a way. It's 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 manipulative. It's um, it's it's telling them like, oh, feel sorry for me. Give me good evaluations, uh, you know, because all professors are evaluated by the students. Um, I'm poor, you know. You don't want to put that out there. You want to not that you should put on false airs, but you shouldn't burden people with your problems because we all have problems. We all have horrible. We all have problems. We all have. Um, most people, almost everyone, has a financial problem. Everyone, everyone has debt of some sort. It's in. It's it's all worse than we can imagine. Credit card debt in America is now a trillion dollars. Uh, student loan debt is probably about the same. It's it's all just it's all just horrible. We all have problems, and you know many people have had to rely on assistance in some way over the years. And you know you hear it from the journalism end too. You, you hear like, "Hey, we're barely paying our bills. We have to freelance. We're being taken advantage of." You don't have to take like a W nine job um, that, or I ninety nine or whatever the form is. W ninety. I don't know what it is. The form where you're a freelancer. You don't have to take those jobs. First off, you don't have to be exploited. You don't have to write SEO copy. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Um, you don't have to have backlinks and, and those things that they try to get you to do to manipulate the internet. You don't have to do any of that. But secondly, um, it doesn't... You should be thinking of ways where if journalism is your thing and something you've don't, given much of your life to, devoted much of your life to. You studied it. You practiced it for years and decades and et cetera, et cetera. And you have a love for it and you have a talent for it. Don't you want to be good at all aspects of it? Meaning journalism isn't just writing. I know the corporations that have owned daily newspapers want you to believe that journalism is the, um, is just the writing, especially the objective style of journalism. That was more popular last century. Um, I'm, I'm personally veering away from that into a more solutions style of, of journalism. As uh, I, th I think there's more future to that. I think no one believes objective journalism anymore anyway. And there's so much competition out there. And I see that objective style journalism gets like zero clicks. And it doesn't mean I have to have a hard opinion. It's just that you have to offer more than just a he said, she said nowadays. In any case, being a full-fledged journalist isn't just writing, you know, writing a lead and writing quotes and writing segues and a kicker and uh, and submitting your words to an editor and they put it in a publication, whether it's print or online. That is not all there is to journalism. And I see all these hundreds and thousands of displaced journalists out there and almost none of them start a business that's journalism related that is feasible. You know, I mentioned that they might open a, a WordPress or something. Uh, big deal. I have like eight WordPress sites, you know, like none of them really make money. But they, they, um, 
they're not starting a viable business. So why, when they were journalists at a regional paper like the LA Times or Baltimore Sun or something, why didn't they protect themselves all those years? I know they were busy, just like the adjuncts. They didn't have the time to polish and, and to think of side gigs, and they devoted all of their energies to who, what, where, when, sometimes why and how. But, you know, take a little time out for yourself. And I kind of had the blessing. I was one of those devoted journalists that, like, you know, put it all out there um, and gave full energy. And I started having, like, um, uh, and I never had them before, like panic attacks and, and, like, heart palpitations in my, like, later 20s. And I was simply overworked. I was devoting all this energy to it. And eventually, you know, I had all the tests and stuff. I said, there's nothing wrong with you. And eventually I, I said, okay, so it's obviously the work that's doing it. And even in your 20s, you know, I was, I was starting to have like, you know, like uh, health issues that you wouldn't normally have. And you see that in the academic world too. And I can't say that the academic world didn't have its trials and travails too, because I had stuff like shingles at 40 when most people don't get it until well after 50, you know, things like that. There was a lot of stressors there too. And I guess I internalize it. But a lot of that though made me think like, all right, if I have to protect myself and I got to do some things. So I would learn things that might help me. And why doesn't a, um, if you work at a big regional paper, why not learn how to do InDesign and design pages. Um, why not learn how to recruit writers, freelancers, and edit those freelancers? And because freelancers are a much different animal than someone who um, works in a newsroom as a full timer. Just like adjuncts are a totally different animal than a full time tenured professor. They they're much more. Um, and I've done tons of freelancing and tons of adjuncting, and we I'll say are much more feral than an established you know, full-time editor who works at a place like LA Times or like an associate dean at a, um, at a college or something. We're much more feral than that. So, um, you know, think about it. You know, why didn't you learn how to make a, a publication? Why didn't you try to make a publication? Um, why didn't you learn how to sell ads to monetize or figure out a way to monetize your publication? Why didn't you network with like-minded people that could help move you along and form valuable partnerships? So maybe you know a photographer who can shoot great shots and you give them a free ad in the paper um, for shooting the shots. Um, and meanwhile, it helps you sell papers because you have better photography. Or why not bump into like some old timer? Because don't forget, all these journalists were misplaced, but so were all the business people. They were they were displaced. Um, so the journalists were displaced, but so were the like these people that used to sell ads at print publications. Put an ad on Craigslist or similar. Put an ad in your own publication. Say we're looking for an ad salesperson part time, commission only, and you'll get some you'll get some old timer there. You'll get some old timer who used to be good at it. And don't be ageist and hire that old timer. You know, make an agreement and give them 30%. And say you can have 30% of any ad you sell because 30% is better than nothing. And they'll go out there, they'll go to your local shoe stores and your local pizza places and your local restaurants, and they'll they'll sell and you have this nice partnership and you cut that person 30%. 
and then you, now you have a publication, and you're bringing in uh, $2,000 an issue, and it costs $1,000 an issue to print it. And then you put it in the back of your car, and you drop, and you get some wire racks, you know, you buy them off a website or something, or you just, so many newspapers have gone out of business, you can find racks sometimes that are abandoned, and put your little nameplate on the racks and stick them in grocery stores, and now you have a free paper in your community. So if you were L.A. Times and you were serving the whole L.A. region of millions and millions of people, maybe you live in a community of 20,000 people, and you put up little racks, and now there's a venue for like the local businesses that couldn't afford to advertise in the L.A. Times. They can advertise in your little weekly paper. You're bringing in enough money to pay your bills, and, um, and you can maybe hire a freelancer here or there, and you have an ad person on commission. You know, in the adjunct teaching world, when you get to a certain point in time, you have to realize, hey, the writing's on the wall. I've been doing this adjunct teaching, and it used to be an aspiration to become a full-time professor, but because I'm doing all of this work, I don't have time to have much polish, and I don't have time to get rid of the bags under my eyes from being so tired. So I'm not interviewing well, or I'm not, like, when I meet people, I'm not conveying um, a winning personality. Um, and so many adjuncts get sucked into the, the victim personality, and it's true. You know, we're all, like, one paycheck away from being a victim. You know, a lot of people say, you know, you, you look at problems like homelessness. We're not far from, you know, a lot of us are not far from that. It could just be anything. It could be, you know, any catastrophe could send us into that. We, we all know that. None of us have a great safety net. But, you know, try to look for ways to improve your lot, to to make yourself more well-rounded, because times have changed incredibly in the past 20, 30 years. And if you weren't on the forefront of that, if you were just doing that one thing for the past 10, 20, 30 years, you might find yourself out of date. And then what are you going to do? You're going to be one of these um, retirees working at McDonald's, you know, it's nothing, nothing wrong with hard work, but, or do you want to be, um, in your sixties and a consultant, one of these people that just drives in and consults because you know so much about a particular field or figure out something. Um, but it's, it's counterproductive in so many ways to blame newspapers, to blame colleges Yes, they all could do better. They all could pay more. You know, I wish well, newspapers are kind of going out of business, so they have a better excuse. Colleges could pay more, although some colleges are going out of business. But they are a little bit top-heavy with administration, honestly. If, if, like, a quarter of the administrators were cut, then all the adjuncts could get double their, their adjunct rate at the very least, and that would be quite nice. But, all right, this is where we are, and there's, you know... Sometimes they say there's a, you can't beat City Hall as the expression, and that's the way it is. So knowing the ground rules, does the complaining help anything? Does it help you with your students or your readers if they know that you're barely making ends meet? No, it doesn't. So instead, try to focus on what you can do, the little things. I know life gets in the way. I know like people are taking care of parents that are sick. People are taking care of spouses that are sick. Um, catastrophe happens, you know, you're, there's all kinds of things that happen. Things happen all the time and they, they happen to everyone. It's universal and some worse than others. And, um, 
but the blame just doesn't just blaming things isn't productive. So I think there has to be an important, there has to be um, a moment in your life just like happened to me when I was like getting EKGs and stuff because I thought I was having like a heart attack at 27 years old or 28 years old. Um, there has to be a moment in your life where you just say, all right, I'm just going to put this on me. I have to make sure that I'm okay. And I'm just going to do the best I can with what I have and, uh, and go from there. So anyway, this is the weekly newspaper podcast. If you want to hear more, go to weeklynewspaperpodcast.com or find it on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can find it in other places, I guess. Let's get to that uh, funky, that funky um, pre-made music that is obviously copyright-free or it wouldn't be on this, um, this podcast board. All right, this is Darren Johnson. You can find the Journal and Press on journalandpress.com. Campus News is at cccnews.info. All right, weeklynewspaperpodcast.com.